This morning, we are going to be in the book of Judges. As I've thought about Judges this week, I started kind of thinking about one of the things that, that I've led the staff to do here. We meet with people all throughout the week who come in and, and they want help in one, one way or another. And really what they're looking for from us is some type of, of, of release. They want financial release. They want financial help. <clears throat> they need help with food. I mean, some of these people are just hurting and they just want to talk to somebody. They want to come in. They want to share the things that are going on in their life. And they want to hear what does the Bible say to them in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of these struggles? How can we help them? Well, maybe, maybe a month ago, I had have one guy in particular who's just kind of stuck in my mind. And he comes in, and he's sitting across from me. And, and I always start these engagements right about the same way. I say, help me get to know you and what's going on in your life. Generally, people are just fine with that. And they just start talking. And, and the more they talk, you really begin to discover what is the chief need in this person's life. And so this guy went on and on. And he has a variety of needs. He's been unemployed. He has a number of things going on in his life. He had gotten out of prison in the last six months. and was really struggling. was really struggling. And so he told me about all these failed endeavors that he had given his hand to. He said, well, you know, I had this job, but I got fired. I had that job, but I got fired. I, I bought this car, and it broke down this way. I bought that car, and it broke down that way. And, 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 and people were abusing him and not thinking highly of him. And so we go through this whole thing. And I say, why are you trying so hard? He, I mean, he's just crying. He's broken. He said, well, I, I've got to make this work. I've got to do this. I've got to be the one to make this thing work. And I said, friend, what would you say if I told you that the thing you're striving for is impossible, that the thing you think you need isn't your actual need? He said, he said I guess I'd be skeptical. He said, I guess I'd be skeptical. He said, I don't, I don't want anything from anybody else. I don't want anybody to do something for me. I, I want to be the one to bring this about. I want to be the one to fix this. I want to be the one to make this right. He wanted to be his own deliverer. He wanted to set himself free. He wanted to set himself on the path to deliverance. He wanted to be the one that's fully in control. Right? And this isn't an isolated situation. This isn't something that you have to go to prison to experience. This isn't something you have to lose your job to experience. This is something we all struggle with. We, in some sense, our flesh cries out and says, let me be in control. Let me be the one to direct this. Let me be the one to guide this. Let me be the one who brings about deliverance and freedom in my own life. Like, I'm not alone on this, am I? Today we read the story of Samson, one who is set out to be a deliverer for the people of Israel. But we're going to see ourselves in here. We're going to see ourselves in this picture. Turn with me to Judges 2. Let's read a little bit of the introduction. Now Judges falls historically after the death of Joshua in and kind of bumping up against the coming of the kings. That's, that's where it fits historically. And so if you're trying to figure out where chronologically this fits within the whole scheme of things, Moses dies, Joshua dies, God raises up judges, judges pass away, and then the kings come, okay? So this is chronologically where it fits. But let's read chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, to give you a taste or a flavor of what is happening. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. That's it. 
Judges were raised up. They are agents of deliverance. He says, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and soon bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. It says, they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. They didn't obey the commandments of the Lord. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. God comes alongside the judge. He empowers the judge. And he saved them from the hand of, of their enemies all the days of the judge. Who's saving them? God is. So the Lord was moved by pity of their groanings because of those who were afflicted and oppressed. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Do you see the hardness in that? And so really what we see as we study the book of Judges is every time a judge comes along, he brings deliverance in some way, shape, or form. The people experience that. They love that. They're walking in that. The judge dies, and they go back, and and they're harder than they ever were. Their hearts are more corrupt than they ever were, and they more solidly hold on to the sin that they had temporarily seen deliverance from. They more... They're more steadfast, they're more stubborn, they're more arrogant, they're more given, they're more prone. They like, in some sense, oppression. Now, arguably, the most prominent or the most well-known judge is Samson. He occupies four full chapters in this book, his life does. And we're going to look at some of these occasions in here. But probably why we're most captivated with the story of Samson is it's it's larger than life, right? It's, it's, it's this larger than life narrative. We, catch, we get caught up with his tremendous strength that he is one who is so incredibly full of fault. He's just this, this guy who goes around and you, you keep thinking to yourself, Samson, can't you, can't you get it right? Can't you just do the right thing a little bit longer? Look at Samson's purpose in verse 5 of chapter 13. Now, what we read when we first get to verse 5, it says that he's going to be a Nazarite from his birth. If you want to read in Numbers 6, 1 through 12, you can read all about that. Basically, it is three tenets. It is having nothing in whatsoever to do with grapes, either their skin, their seed, or their product, which would be wine or grape juice. Nothing to do with that. He, he can't cut his hair. He can never cut his hair. And then lastly, he's not supposed to touch any dead thing. Now, the Nazarite vow or pledge was meant to be temporary. I mean, people would take this on. They would do it for a period of time. But it would be a a definite period of time, some months, a year or two. Samson, from before he's ever born, is given to this pledge. And it is supposed to be the tenor in which he lives his life. He's supposed to be one who is set apart. And those three things that he's not supposed to do are supposed to give evidence to the fact that he is Set apart. But look here at the end of verse 5. This is what his objective in life is to be. We read it says, He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so we get this in our mind from the beginning of his story. Samson, as we read earlier about in the birth narrative, this angel of the Lord comes to his parents and they say, Look, every parent in some sense thinks their child is special. Like the child comes out, I remember when one of our children was born, his, his earlobe stuck out like this, his head was 
Oh, it was, I just kept thinking, it's going to come back to the normal shape. It's going to come back to the normal shape. But you look at him and you're like, you're just so beautiful. You're so lovely. You're going to grow up to, you know, you know, cure something amazing if, if those earlobes come back. If those things don't, you're going to take flight. He's not in here. But, but Samson's parents, like, they have a definitive reason to rejoice at their son. It's not like, oh, you're pregnant. It's going to be a beautiful baby boy. He's going to be so healthy. He's going to be so amazing. They're told that he's going to be amazing. Like, so he's born, he comes out, and they're like, this, this kid's going to deliver us. This kid is going to deliver us. Every time they go in and they change a diaper, every time they go in, he's crying in the middle of the night. They look, they see him, they say, this one is going to begin to bring about deliverance for the people of Israel. I mean, that's, that's overwhelming. Talk about some pressure to grow up in, huh? And so if you grow up in a family and all your parents and your aunts and your uncles are all doctors, you grow up with this expectation that you're going to be in the medical field. That's a little bit of pressure. But Samson had an angel of the Lord come in and speak to his parents and say, this is what he's going to do, this is how he's going to do it, and this is how you need to daily remind him because he can't have anything to do with these other things. So every time Samson saw his hair pass by his eyes, he had this reminder that I'm a Nazarite. I am am special, I am working for the deliverance of these people, and that was his daily reminder. He couldn't get it out of his head. And we get to the end of chapter 13, and this is what we read. Verses 24 and 25, it says, The woman bore a son, called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. The blessing, the provision of God was upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. It began to, to stir, and this is this amazing promise. Samson begins with so much more promise, so much more anticipation of all these good things he's going to do, right? But we find ourselves being disappointed and crushed over and over and over again. Look here in chapter 14. Starts off, he says, Samson went down to Timnah. Now, this is roughly uh, a four-hour trip or so from where he lives. Samson went down there. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Samson sees an enemy. He sees an oppressor. He sees somebody who is working to suppress, to oppress the Israelite people. Verse 2, he says, Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now go get her for me as my wife. This person who's supposed to be set apart, this person who's supposed to be working for the deliverance of God's people, he goes and he sees a woman who's not an Israelite. He, in fact, she and her family are those who are oppressing the people of Israel. And look at his parents' reaction. It says, but his father and his mother said to him, is there, is there not a woman among the daughters of our relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Philistines? But Samson said to his father, go get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Samson saw this woman, and this is what he did. He looked at her and said, you are, I don't want to make anybody awkward, I'm looking at the floor. He said, you are gorgeous. You're just, you're phenomenally beautiful. I just need to look at my wife. <laughs> the floor is a little creepy for me. This, this will just be creepy for y'all. He said, you're, you're, you're phenomenally beautiful. You're, I, I love everything about you, but let's just, let's just focus on the outside. You're, you're, you're everything my eyes could, could want and desire and hope for. But his parents are pleading with him. They're asking him, and they're saying, look, this, this, this lady and her folks, they're radically opposed to us. You know, in their minds, they're thinking, Samson is supposed to be set apart. He's supposed to be the one 
is going to work for the deliverance of, of, of us as God's people? Why in the world is he finding himself heading it relationally to be intertwined with someone who's working for our eradication, working for our demise? And so they begin to argue with him and say, Samson, couldn't you take this lady? And he says, she is gorgeous and I want her. I want her to be mine. And so his parents relent. They, they enter into this arrangement. They're, they're looking for something. And what we find in verse 4 isn't an endorsement of Samson's choice. What we find in verse 4 of this chapter is effectively God can still work to preserve his people. And, 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 and you could say it this way. God can still hit straight licks with crooked sticks. God can still accomplish amazing things with people that are faulty. Verse 4 told us, his father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. God is still going to use Samson to accomplish his end, to accomplish his goal. Now, somewhere between Samson's hometown and Timnah, he's walking with his parents. He gets separated from them, and a lion comes at him. And, and Samson really has a very different reaction than any of us would have. Uh, most of us are looking for somebody much slower to outrun or to trip or to push them down. Samson instead allows this line to come to him. And in verse 6 we read of chapter 14, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his mother or father what had happened. Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson. Samson does not do this in his own strength. You've got to see that. You've got to recognize that as we walk through this book together. Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. This lion comes at him. He grabs it and just rips it in half. Imagine that you or I would pick up a piece of paper and tear it. That's the ease that Samson puts to tearing this lion in half. Now they go down there and they're working out. And what they're building towards is this negotiation of the marriage rights. My son loves your daughter. What are we, how can we work these things out? But some days later, they've been in Timnah. Some days later, Samson is headed back there, and he discovers the carcass of this lion. It's been picked clean, and bees have come, and they've made a hive in there. And so he reaches down, and he scoops up the honey out of this hive. Now I'm thinking, this thing must have been picked pretty clean, or else he's got a much stronger stomach than I do. But he, he scoops it up. Now remember, Samson is not supposed to come into contact with any dead thing. Now this is what's really interesting about this. Samson feels the spirit and the power of the Lord come upon him. He remembers that as he tears this lion in half. But he has such complete disdain and disregard for the movement of God and what he's supposed to be in his life that he sees the dead thing. Instead of avoiding it, he walks right over to it and sees the dead thing and he scoops down and he takes something out. And he begins to eat. And he walks up to his parents and he gives them some and they start to eat. And the text tells us that he didn't tell them where it had come from. So Samson goes down and he meets his in-laws. And he gives us this, this, this encounter with his in-laws and he puts a riddle to them. And he, he basically asks them if they can figure out what he did. He gives them this riddle that is telling them about what he did. And he says to them in verse 14, he says, Out of the eater came something sweet, out of the strong came something, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. 
And he set up this deal. He says, look, if you can guess this, by the end of this period of time, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't guess it, then you give that to me. They agree, and they they go about this. And the text tells us that in three days, they could not solve the riddle. They're beginning to panic a little bit. But on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, or his fiancée, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. They think that this lady is on Samson and his family side against she and her family side. And they threaten her life, they threaten her father's life, they threaten to burn their whole house to the ground. And Samson's wife goes to him, verse 16, and wept over him, said, you only hate me and you do not love me. She questions his in the intensity of devotion that he asked for her. He said, you've put a riddle on my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not told my father nor my mother. What? Why should I tell you? Effectively, I've not told people that I grew up with my whole life. You, I just thought was beautiful. You, I just thought you were beautiful. Why should I tell you? Well, she's going to get him. Verse 17, it says, and she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard. Imagine that. Samson's got this riddle. He puts it to them. He knows there's no way they figure this thing out. His wife goes to him, and she begins to to cry a little bit. She says, you don't care anything for me. You hate me and my people. And she begins to cry. She's pouring out these tears. Samson's much stronger than I am. I can't stand. Somebody cries in front of me. I'm like emptying wallets and and pockets and everything, just trying to make the tears stop. Um, it's it's, It's pretty uncomfortable for me to begin with. But, and so she's doing this, and, and just day after day going to him, and it's just, it's not this, he's like, what's wrong? She's like, nothing. Pass the moisturized Kleenex. It's this really ugly cry, right? She goes to him day after day, and every time that their eyes meet, she's, no! You! No! And it's, he just can't take it anymore. Like, he can't, it's, it's not that he's, he's, broken over this and his hardness, he just, he's frustrated, he's tired of it. And so he tells her the riddle. He tells her exactly the answer. She turns around and she turns those folks. She doesn't want to die. She doesn't want her father's home to be burned to the ground. And so they come to Samson and they say, oh, look, we got it. Verse 18, they said, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, this idiomatic expression that, that, Hopefully you would never say of your wife. He says, if you'd not plowed with my heifer, then you would not have found out my riddle. Now, what we recognize from this is that they don't use heifers for plowing. Effectively, he's saying, you turned my wife against me. You used something that, that wasn't yours to use. You used something and, and you twisted what its purposes were, and that's how you found out my riddle. And so Samson travels about 24 miles from this location. Now all of a sudden, he's got to come up with these 30 changes of clothes and 30 linen. He's got to figure out how to do this. And so he travels roughly 24 miles or so away, and he wreaks havoc on the Philistines. He steals their changes of clothing, he steals their linen, and he brings it back to her. He brings it back to her. And, and to her people, and, and, and it's handed out. But he is so angry and so frustrated. But he doesn't go back to where his wife is. In fact, he goes home and he begins to pout. 
In chapter 15, it says, And after some days at the time of the wheat harvest, so some considerable amount of time has passed, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. He's going, in some sense, to make amends. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her. By his actions, by the way that he had treated her family, he said, I thought you had hated her. And so he gave her to your companion. I gave her to your best man. And so he proposes a switch. He said, would you not? What about her younger sister? She's more beautiful. Would you take her? And Samson just... He just, he just can't get over this. He can't get over this betrayal. He, in some sense, maybe Samson can't even deal with his own failure. And so he goes and he takes it out on, on others. He goes and, and the text tells us that he found 300 foxes, or some of your translations say jackals, and he ties them tail to tail, and he puts torches between their tails, and he sets them loose. And they burn the crops down. It, sets, it burns their crops down. It burns the stacked grain in verse 5, and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. So the Philistines come in in verse 6 of chapter 15, and they said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Temnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up, and they, they burned her and her father with fire. This doesn't sit well with Samson. And so he goes out, and the ESV renders this a little interesting. It's it's another idiomatic expression. In verse 8 it says, He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Let me me tell you what this means. He struck them hip and thigh. What Samson did was whoop up on them. I mean, this is kind of what it means. You read in other translations, and he said them, He gave them a severe beating. But you want to break it down into our, our vernacular. He whooped up on them. He's a big old boy, and he poured it out all over them. Samson beat them really well, and and he he effectively thinks that it's over with. He does this thing to them because they did, and so it's this tit-for-tat exercise for Samson. So he goes, and he finds himself in the rock at Etam, and he's kind of hanging out in a secluded area. And what we find are a thousand of the Philistines come, and they raid this Jewish encampment at Lehi. And so 3,000 men of Judah come out and they say, why did y'all do this? Why did you come out and do this to us? And they say, well, it's, it's not us, it's Samson. Samson's the one you really need to talk to. And this is this amazing thing. These 3,000 men of Judah come up to Samson, who is to be their deliverer. He's supposed to work for their deliverance. And these 3,000 men of Judah, this this army that outsteps the 1,000 men they encounter, three to one, come to Samson, and they say to him in verse 11, they say, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? They don't want to be delivered. They don't want things upset. They don't want the apple cart tumped over. They want things to continue as they were. 3,000 men come to this guy who's incredibly strong, who's who's set aside from God to be their deliverer, and they look at him and they say, what in the world, man? Are you crazy? Don't you know that these oppressors in our land are lords over us? Don't you know that these people are our enemies? Don't you know that they're here and and they're, they're reigning authority over us? Why would you do this to us? You see, in a certain sense, they liked 
the familiarity of oppression. They didn't want to be set free. They didn't want to be delivered. They looked at the oppression. They looked at the difficulty in their life, and they said, this is totally familiar. This is totally okay. We don't want things to change. I mean, how many of you, how many of you here today find yourselves in this situation? Maybe a person who's not yet come to Jesus and you look at the sin, you look at the frustration in your life and you say, look, if I can't fix this for myself, then I don't want anybody to fix this for me. You're prideful. You struggle with depression, you struggle with all these things, you look at it and you say, yeah, but it's, it's consistent. I don't want to do anything with this. Some of us tolerate these pet sins in our life and these, these, these moments where we just are so incredibly living in the flesh and fallen, we say, look, I don't want to take that out of my life. I'm afraid what my life would be if I didn't have that. These men of Judah go to Samson and they effectively say the same thing. Don't change it for us. So Samson makes a deal with them. He says, look, I'll let you hand me over to the men, to the Philistines, I'll let you hand me over to them but you've got to promise not to harm yourself. And so they take him and, and they take his arms and they bind him with fresh ropes and they send him out and they hand him over to those men. And so you can imagine Samson has this thousand men running at him, shouting, ready to rip him limb from limb. On the other hand, he's got this 3,000 of his countrymen walking away from him, abandoning him, leaving him. They think he deserves this. They want to see him cause them no more trouble. And so this thousand men are rushing at him, and Samson breaks free of those ropes. He reaches over, and he sees where a, a donkey's carcass is beginning to rot, and he grabs its jawbone. Again, showing disregard and disdain for the blessing of God on his life. And he grabs it, and he beats them severely. Verse 15 of chapter 15 says, He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And he struck a thousand men. Samson heaps up this massive pile of men and he does so using something that he's not even supposed to be touching. Incidentally, the narrator wants to give us a, an understanding of how long these events have transpired over what period of time. And we see that at the end of chapter 15, that he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So for 20 years, Samson is engaging in exploit after exploit. He's, he's seeing the Spirit of God come upon him. He's doing these amazing things. But he's not reverencing God as sacred, special, He's holding disdain and disregard for the anointing of God in his life. And we come here in chapter 16 to the last exploit of Samson. Movies have been made about Samson's relationship with Delilah. Delilah, whose name for many is synonymous with traitor, with seductress. And we pick up in chapter 16 and verse 4, and we read that after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak whose name was Delilah. 
Again, we find Samson going after a woman that is radically opposed to him and his people. And he loves her. He's bent with emotion towards her. What perhaps began in lust has now manifested itself in love. But look what happens, verse 5. And the lords of the Philistines, they came up to her and they said, Seduce him. Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him and humble him. (coughs) And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. What they wanted to give her was a tremendous sum of money. They wanted to give her basically 150 pounds worth of silver. They wanted to give her a sum of money she couldn't carry, a sum of money she couldn't fathom, and this is what they won her heart with. Delilah didn't love Samson. She enjoyed him, certainly. But they put this idea of money to her, and she begins to put her mind into figuring out where exactly the strength of Samson's great strength lies. Now, at some point after that, we read in verse 7, that she begins to go to him and to ask him where his great strength lies. So in verse 7, he gives her the first response. He says, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So she goes and she tells the lords of the Philistines, this is what we need to do. We need seven fresh bowstrings. So they go and they give them to her and she ties Samson up at night and and, and he's there and she's got him and she calls out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he breaks free from these bowstrings like they're nothing. She says, okay, that was not it. That was not it. And so she goes to him again and in verse 10 it says, Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how it is that you might be bound. She wants to know the real answer. So he says to her, if they tie me up with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and like any other man. Plan B. So she goes and she she ties him up with these new ropes, and he's tied up, and she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off of his arm like a thread. He breaks free, just like he had done before he put the thousand to flight with the donkey's jawbone. They're about to need some counseling. Verse 13, Delilah comes to him and says, Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. I get the sense that she's getting a little more aggravated as this goes. He said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web and fasten it with a pin, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And so they would bring this web in, and she's taking these long, long locks of his hair, and she's doing this kind of precursor to the French braid. And she's, you know, doing this number, just doing, you know, bringing them all together. And then she takes that pin, and she drives it down, and she's thinking, not only is it beautiful, but it's about to be effective. And so she calls out, and she says, Samson, the Philistines are, are upon you. But he woke up from his sleep and pulled away from the pin and the loom and the web. It didn't phase him. It didn't phase him. Look here in verse, verse 15, and you begin to hear the echo of Samson's previous relationship with his wife in Timnah. And she said to him, how can you say, I love you? She challenges the strength of his resolve and his feelings towards her. 
She says, when your heart is not with me, you have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day. And this is Samson's result. And she urged him to the point where his soul was vexed to death. We're not told how long it is, but what we get is a clear indication that Samson is not one who endures begging and complaining very well. She's in there day after day, moping, complaining. She's not taking the advice of the earlier woman and crying, but she's just she's letting him see the reality of his decision and how it's created separation from her. So eventually he comes to her and he says, and the text tells us, verse 17 of chapter 16, he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. You know what I see? One of the interesting things in this verse is that there are two other provisions to being a Nazarite. And Samson seemed to understand or seemed to think that this relational aspect with God was only met out by keeping one of them. He doesn't get it. He showed complete disdain and disregard for God and and touching dead things and being around likely those who were drinking wine and strong drink there at his first nuptial. But he tells her. In some sense, Samson in this, this, this instance chooses this woman over God. She has proven herself to be A harlot, she's proven herself to be one who is not working for his best interest, but he wants to preserve the relationship. And so he says, this is how you weaken me. Delilah picks up on on it, verse 18. It says, when Delilah saw that he told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up again. This guy has told me everything. So they come up and they brought their money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knee. She invites him to intimacy. She invites him to rest. She brings someone in to shave off the seven locks of his head, and then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And then quite possibly the saddest words that are written in the book of Judges, we read in verse 20. She said to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'm going to go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. Through the course of Samson's life, he was able to treat with complete disdain and disregard the blessing of God in his life. Do what he wanted to do, act the way he wanted to act, with seeming to him absolutely no consequence. So why should it be any different? His hair is cut, they come in, and he sets his mind, he says, I'm going to go out as I did at other times, I'm going to go out, I'm going to wreak havoc on these people. They grab him, they bind him, they cut out his eyes. Samson somehow had led himself to believe that he was the one who was special, not God was enabling him to be such. So you know how the story continues to go. They take Samson, they bind him, they put him in prison. They've got him milling. They've got him working in the mill in the prison. 
But we read in verse 22 that his, his hair begins to grow back. But in some sense, the narrator wants us to understand that the hair is not the source of Samson's power, but it is an indication to the power that Samson is able to receive from God. So the Philistines have an arena of sorts we read about here at the end. And they're gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. In verse 24, when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. They want to see Samson give them some sport. And so they bring this once titan, this once great man out into their midst and he's blind and he's being led around by a little boy and they're mocking him and jeering him and throwing these things out at him and wondering how was he ever perceived as being great or scary or terrible. So Samson asked to be guided towards two of the pillars that, that, that support the overarching structure on which men and women are standing. And he calls out in verse 28. Says, then Samson called out to the Lord, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. It says, Oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And so Samson comes to these two pillars. He places his hands firmly upon them. He begins to feel the strengthening and empowering of God. And he pushes these things forward. And everybody in the place dies. Including Samson. See, Samson worked his entire life in deliverance. But the one who is meant to be to begin the deliverance of his people only sought to deliver himself. The one who is meant to, to free and, and to begin to set aside the Philistines from in the land, he only ever sought to do things that were motivated from his selfish desire to be satisfied sexually according to his strength. And so Samson over and over and over again shows us that he's a completely imperfect deliverer. See, all the deliverance that Samson ever brought was temporary, it was sporadic, and it was motivated from a sense of selfishness. Samson goes out and he he kills a thousand men. Samson goes out and he he gets angry and so he goes out and he takes his anger out on others. He burns their crops to the ground. Samson goes out and, and all of these things are done from this incredibly selfish motivation. He missed the picture of who he's supposed to be. Samson, Samson was supposed to be one who others would join around and hear his rally cry for freedom and deliverance, but instead the only rally cry that Samson ever bought into was his internal appetite. Samson shows us a picture of one whose deliverance is temporary, sporadic, and selfish. But the amazing thing is, this is what God does. God uses Samson as a weak, anemic caricature of what deliverance can be. See, in Samson, we see that deliverance that is temporary, sporadic, and selfish. But in Jesus, we see one who brings deliverance that is eternal, that is continuous, and that stems from this place of selflessness. Samson's in the arena. He prays for the anointing of God. He puts his hands on the pillars and he wants to make them pay. For what? So that the Israelites would experience freedom? No, the text tells us that he wanted vengeance on his eyes. 
Finally, at the end of his life, he realizes that he isn't the one giving him strength, but it is God that is giving him. So he does, in a right sense, reach out to God to empower him, to strengthen him. But he misses the picture. He's myopic. Jesus gets to the end of his life. They take him, and they're preparing to crucify him. Samson's calling out for, for vengeance. Jesus is calling out for forgiveness. You look in Luke 23 and 34, Jesus, as he's preparing to be crucified, looks at all those that mock him, looks at all those who jeered him, looks at all those who whipped him, who beat him, who crowned him with thorns, who were preparing to crucify. And instead of Samson, who cries out with vengeance, Jesus cries out in verse 34 of chapter 23, says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you see the the amazing difference there? Like we wanna, we wanna rally around Samson because in him we see this, 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 this faulty man. In this we see this one who could be like us, who's given to pursuing selfish things. But then we look at Jesus and we say, I can't be like this. I can't be selfless like him. Jesus, who by every right, if you and I were in that place, we would have cried out and said, God, rain down fire on them because they are abusing your son. Jesus in that moment stands and he cries out, forgive them. Everybody was against Jesus. But his prayer and his cry is that God would would bring in forgiveness to them. Jesus is the perfect deliverer. Look here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4. Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Jesus walks into the synagogue. He picks up the scroll. All eyes are on him. And he begins to read the scroll from where it's at in Isaiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and to set liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The deliverance that Samson brought and stopped at the end of his life. But the deliverance afforded all of humanity through the person of Jesus extends far beyond his life. It was formed and planted by God in eternity past and it has effectual power all the way into the future. But as we see this, We've got to understand how this works. You see, some of us are still seeking to be, trying to be our own source of, deli- of deliverance. Some of you have, have yielded your lives to Christ. You have come to know him. You've accepted him in his forgiveness, but yet you refuse to relent. You want to maintain this rigid power and control over the things in your life. You, you, you seek to try and force your marital relationship to be perfect, to be something everybody else would be so happy to have in their lives. You want people to look at you and say, I wish I could have what they have. Some of you, like the man that I met with, are struggling so much. But you're too proud to ask for help. We can only be the imperfect deliverer. Jesus Christ gives us this beautiful embodiment of what it is to deliver 
perfectly. And we read this invitation to join him in Matthew 11 and verse 28. Jesus knowing our, our weakness, Jesus knowing our need, offers this invitation. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Quit trying to create rest on your own. The the one who saved you, saves you still. Do you believe that? The one who called you out of darkness and transferred you into the light, the one who, even in your sins and in your trespasses, was crying out and interceding for you, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do they're acting in their ignorance this one who saved you saves you still this one who delivered you from death from the power of sin he saves you still the invitation to join jesus calls us all to move away from the weak anemic deliverers of our life whether us whether it be money whether it be power whether whatever it be and to cry out to jesus for this continued state of deliverance But you see, some of us are like those in those men of Judah in Judges 15. That you recognize one who could deliver you. Jesus who's capable of setting you free. And you're terrified. You want to know what it's going to cost you? You want to know what you're going to have to give up? You want to know what you're going to have to let go of? You can't even imagine the freedom and release of falling into the arms of the Savior, of coming to him who knows that you are so burdened and, 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 and overworked with trying to satisfy him, with trying to satisfy those around you. Friend, the invitation is open to you. Don't be like those who look at the situation and say, no, thank you. Instead, cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus and ask that he would deliver you, that he would set you free, that he would continue to work in your lives. You see, as we look at this story of deliverance, we see a story of tragedy, of unrealized expectation in Samson. You see, all of our lives have tremendous potential, but that potential is realized in accepting Jesus and the deliverance he brings. Let me pray for us.